0: I know I promised something different in the main show, and we will get around to it, but here's what happened. Yesterday, I got a reminder on my phone. It was from past Demo. Now, you have to understand that past Demo is a jerk. Past Demo has consistently made life difficult for present Demo. Past Demo has exhibited poor judgment before, and he will do so again. But this time, and perhaps only this time, Past Demo had a good idea, and he left a reminder to do this show. Specifically, he left a reminder to do this Halloween show, and that's what's going to happen today. Now, naturally, because Past Demo is such a dickwad, he didn't go to the effort of actually writing this show and having it ready to go. That was a problem for future Demo, who is now present Demo, but it remains a good idea. So here's something that I've been planning to do for quite a few months now, that I probably should have set a reminder for a bit earlier than I did, but it's still going to be fun because, hey, no matter which demo you get, you should trust that all demos know what they're doing. Something we should probably get out of the way at the start is the whole Halloween thing. Halloween isn't really a thing here in the Antipodes. It's kind of hard to get any traction on an end-of-harvest festival when it's starting to come into summer, it's hot, it's humid, and it doesn't start getting dark until about 8pm. Kind of makes life difficult for a spooky festival where people wear stifling hot costumes and rely on the power of darkness. So Halloween never really took off here in Australia. There's always people keen to try it out, but it will never take hold like it has in the Northern Hemisphere, just because of atmospherics, if nothing else. I'm not big on it, I never have been, but I've always been happy to do Halloween themed comedy nights because you can get away with doing the bare minimum of actual comedy in the name of Halloween. It's Candyland. But I'm aware of what my demographics are, and I'm aware that for a lot of people, those north of the equator, Halloween is a really big deal. For a lot of people, Halloween is their favorite holiday, even if it isn't actually a holiday. So for those people, I'm going to make the effort. Either that, or I spotted a chance to latch onto a gimmick and do a fun show I couldn't quite fit thematically anywhere else, take your pick. We're always a choose-your-own-adventure over here. So today's show is going to be all about one of the earliest examples of someone dressing up in a costume to scare the shit out of the unsuspecting public. Today, we're going to be talking about Springheel Jack. <laughs> I've talked about the Victorian era a few times on this show, and it's the gift that keeps on giving. The Victorian era is great for us storytellers here in the 21st century, because the Victorian era was so balls-to-the-wall insane. It would have sucked to have actually lived in the Victorian era, but for those of us here in the future, it was a blast. If you'll recall from those previous shows, pretty much everything in the Victorian era was made out of poison, so everyone was batshit fucking insane all the time. That was the baseline. The paint was made from poison, the dyes were made from poison, the food was poisonous, the air was mostly acid and industrial waste. There wasn't a single thing in the world that wasn't trying to kill you. I put some poison on the food, on the drapes, even on uh, Rosen, and Gildan Lenny here. If Hamlet touches either of us, he's dead. Booyah! (laughs) (laughs) And these were the kind of poisons that worked by getting inside your brain and deleting the bits that make you not fucking insane things like lead and mercury. Lead and mercury were more common than water back in the day. So most people were some form of mad, but some were more so than others. And thus, the Victorian era is such a rich vein of history from which we might draw. When I say Victorian era, here's what I mean, by the way. Queen Victoria reigned from 1837 to 1901, but we can consider the bulk of the 19th century to be the Victorian era, because she was such a powerful force in it. Either that, or saying the Georgian era just sounds really weird, so take your pick. But I'm going to be going with Victorian. The 19th century is probably the most transformative time in human history, bar none, including the 20th century. So, between all of that change and all of the toxins in the air and the food and the water, it's not surprising that people went off the deep end on the reg. It was just a crazy time. Someone living in 1801 would live a peasant lifestyle very similar to someone living in 1701, who would live a life largely indistinguishable to someone living in 1601, who lived a life like... so? You get the idea, right? But someone living in 1901 would be driving a car to a factory in a big city and was only a couple of years away from seeing powered flight. So there is a lot of change happening in that century. And as I've said many a time in these shows, during this most turbulent century of all, the capital of the entire world was London, England. In 1801, the population of London was very slightly under 2 million people. By 1901, a century later, it was 6.5 million. Throw in the fact that the vast majority of these people lived and worked in slums and that everything was trying to kill you, and it's a recipe for insanity. So probably because of all of this, you know, the booming well, everything, that's probably why Victorian England had one of the most fucked up social systems in the history of mankind. They were utterly obsessed with class, and the class you were born into was the class that you stayed. There wasn't any of this Gatsby nonsense going on in England. If you were poor, you stayed poor, and if you were rich, then the poor were there for you to hunt for sport. You can still see remnants of this today with the English, they still have this weird hang-up on social standing and class that the rest of the world thinks is madness, but that's nothing compared to what was happening in the 19th century. For instance, you were not allowed to speak to, approach, or even look at someone who was of a higher station than you. That was one of the social rules, and it's one of the main reasons that I would never want to travel too far back in time. I've always been working class. I absolutely would have been executed for beating the shit out of some prick who thought he was better than me because of what twat he popped out of. Seriously, you could go to jail for speaking to someone of a higher class than you. It was an actual crime to speak to someone of a higher social standing. If you were a woman, then your entire life was controlled from cradle to grave. There were social rules that dictated when you could speak and who you could speak to what topics you were allowed to talk about, how you dressed, what you ate, which hand you drank your tea with. All of that had rules. Men had it a lot better, but still, if you had your honour slighted, or you accidentally slighted someone else's honour through one of the million crazy fucking unwritten laws of Victorian social life, if you breached any of those, you could find yourself in a literal fight to the death over an ephemeral concept such as honour. Honestly, what is honor? Can you draw it? Now, how do you know that the two trannies are lawyers? Because it's an old book, okay? These people were absolutely fucking insane. They lived horrible, short lives, surrounded by poison. They were always miserable, and their lives sucked in most of the ways it is possible for a life to suck. Your odds of surviving as a baby were 75%. One in four babies died. If you made it past that, then the average lifespan was 57 years old. If you were rich. Poor people barely made it to their 30s. And as you can probably imagine, this meant that Victorian London was rife with crime. If you're poor, you have no chance of ever not being poor and you're almost certain to die in the next couple of years anyway, what do you got to lose? Crime on, baby. I've got a show on the way in the future about weapons from the Victorian era, because there are some truly bizarre, amazing steampunk contraptions that sprang up in all of this chaos, such as a gun barrel that pointed out of the small of your back. Apparently one of the biggest threats in this day and age was grotting. People would be walking down the street and then suddenly they'd be mugged and the mugger would throw a rope or something similar around a person's neck and start choking them out. That was a common crime. So naturally, the solution to this, and you know everyone's head goes there, right, was for people to have a gun on their belt that pointed backwards with a trigger tied to a string that you tied to your finger so that if someone came up behind you and started choking you, you could shoot them in the dick. And that's just one example. So with all of this flavor, you can begin to see how that kind of world might inspire something like Springheeled Jack, the first urban legend. Buckle up. Here we go. In September 1837, a woman by the name of Polly Adams and a couple of her girlfriends were leaving a Blackheath pub by the name of the Green Man which is possibly the most English sentence ever written. For everyone who picked up on the fact that the Green Man pub isn't random and is in fact referencing Arthurian legend, which I assume is all of you, well done. So Polly Adams and her friends finish their pint and head off into the dark, foggy night of southeast London. And as they rounded a corner, a figure suddenly burst out of the darkness. This figure was humanoid and cloaked entirely in black. It wore a dark metal helmet. The creature reeked of sulfur, and as it lunged at the women, it breathed a plume of blue fire. The monster leapt at Polly Adams and began tearing at her clothes with its metal claws. Polly fell to the ground under the assault while her friends turned tail and ran. And always remember, kids, when confronted with a monster, you don't need to be faster than all of your friends. Just one of them, in this case, Polly Adams. As Polly lay on the ground screaming and waiting for the end, the mysterious creature once more breathed a cloud of blue flame, and as suddenly as it appeared, it disappeared back into the night, leaving an echoing, ominous cackle as it went. <laughs> Polly Adams had scratch marks on her arms and torso, her clothing was shredded, but she was otherwise unharmed. Physically, I mean, mentally, I don't know how one deals with being assaulted by something that looks, sounds, and smells exactly like the Christian devil, especially for people who believed that the Bible was real, but Polly Adams was poor, so we don't really care about her. A month later, the creature struck again. This time, a servant girl by the name of Mary Stevens in a place called Clappen Common. And I take it back, that is as English as it's possible to get. As Mary was walking down a main road, the same black cloaked figure burst out of a dark side alley. Once again, it breathed blue fire before leaping on its victim. Before Mary could react, the creature grabbed her arms and pinned them above her head with her hands that she would later describe as cold and clammy, as those of a corpse. Before it started tearing at her clothes with metal claws and leaning in to begin kissing Mary's face, Mary screamed and residents came from their houses to investigate. The creature was startled and it released Mary before disappearing into a cloud of black smoke. The forming crowd looked for the creature, but it had once again vanished into thin air. Only its mocking laughter echoed through the cold London night. (laughs) And look, alright future people, I know what you're thinking with your 21st century sensibilities. This obviously isn't the devil. This is obviously a sex criminal in a costume, but you need to remember that these people back then didn't know that. The following night, the creature was sighted once more. This time, it jumped in front of a passing horse and carriage, once more all smoke and blue flames. It scared the horses so badly that they reared and toppled the carriage, severely injuring the coach driver. Once more, the noise drew people from their houses, and they arrived to see the black figure laughing maniacally before, according to the eyewitness reports, the creature jumped a ten foot high wall in a single bound before once more disappearing into the night not leaving a trace and from then on this demon was to be known as spring heel jack because he had springs in his feet obviously that's how he's able to leap ten foot high walls look this was before kevin feige people weren't great with names all right How did Spring-Heeled Jack accomplish all of this? The blue flame, the smoke, the leaping ten-foot-high walls. Was he actually a demon escaped from hell to prey on London? Was he a man with supernatural powers? Did he actually have springs in his shoes? Did he have some kind of grappling hook? Was he an early practitioner of what would later become known as parkour? Get that parkour! Get that parkour! Uh -uh. Is eyewitness testimony inherently unreliable and the wall wasn't that high and he didn't clear it in a single jump? As we say, choose your own adventure. But that's all that was required for the very first urban legend to be born. The press found the story and ran with it, and soon the legend was being spread all over the country and then later the world. Springhill Jack, the nocturnal terror that preyed on the fair women of London. On February 19th, 1838, a woman by the name of Jane Allsop was reading in her home late one night when she heard a knock on the door. And suddenly, to my surprise... The voice claimed to be a policeman and, furthermore, claimed that he had just apprehended none other than the Spring-Heeled Jack. The policeman called from the other side of the door. He said he needed Jane to bring him a lantern so that he could properly see. Dutifully, Jane fetched her reading lamp, opened the door, and met the policeman. Now, remember, this was a different time. We here, with our modern sensibilities, we might have wondered, well, A, who the hell opens the door in the first place? Millennials don't do that. But, we might also wonder why the police officer didn't have a lantern of his own. Or why he was able to catch Springhill Jack in the pitch blackness of London, but suddenly needed a lamp because reasons. But Jane didn't ask these questions. She handed the officer the lantern, and as soon as she did, the figure threw open its cloak and presented, to quote Jane Alsop here, a most hideous and frightful appearance. The figure had glowing red eyes, and it breathed gouts of blue flame. It grabbed Jane and began tearing off her clothes with metal claws. Jane broke free and ran back towards her house, but the creature caught her and began to gouge her face and her neck with its claws. It was dragging Jane back into the darkness when one of her sisters heard Jane's screams and began throwing objects at spring Jack, causing Jack to once again flee into the shadows with its mocking laughter. But what's different here is that Jane Allsop wasn't Whore. Jane Alsop was an aristocrat. What do you call yourself? And they say the aristocrats! Which meant that this time the authorities actually cared about this supernatural serial rapist. A night watch was established to track down and capture Springheel Jack. This task force was headed up by none other than Arthur Wellesley. Yes, that Arthur Wellesley. The Duke of Wellington, the Iron Duke, the dude who beat Napoleon. The then 70-year-old Duke of Wellington patrolled the streets of London with a rifle for weeks, but he was never able to catch Spring Hill Jack, who, by transitive property, must have been better than Napoleon. While the Iron Duke was off patrolling another part of London, Springhill Jack struck again. This time, it was an 18-year-old woman by the name of Lucy Scales. Lucy was approached by a man dressed as a policeman. The policeman shone his lantern in her eyes, proving that all police across space and time are all the same. Just as Jane was about to introduce herself to this officer of the law... The policeman dropped the lantern and revealed himself to be Springhill Jack, the same routine, the glowing eyes, the smoke, the gouts of blue flame and this scared Lucy so much that she froze in shock and started convulsing in a seizure and Seeing this, a woman writhing on the ground, Springhill Jack fled the scene. The Times then picked up the story of these two attacks. Because there's only been two. The ones on poor people don't count in Victorian London, remember? These attacks were on aristocrats now, people who mattered, so suddenly it was big news. The Times reported it, and from then on, the legend grew and grew. Penny dreadfuls were written about the exploits of Spring Hill Jack. Plays were written. He was featured in Punch and Judy puppet shows. Street preachers began appearing, because of course they did, claiming that Springhill Jack was the devil himself come to London to punish them for their sins. Were you sent here by the devil? No good, sir, I'm on the level. And as this fame and notoriety kept building and building and building, as for Springhill Jack, after the Lucy Scales assault, he went silent. Maybe there was too much heat now, too many people looking for him to be able to operate, Maybe he had fulfilled his goals as the agent of chaos, sowing discord and fear throughout London. Maybe he was just tired. But for whatever reason, Springhill Jack was gone. He didn't reappear until 1843 in Peckham. But from then on, there were a spate of sightings, and not just in London, but all over England. He attacked a male coach in East Anglia, he was sighted leaping from rooftop to rooftop in Northamptonshire, and he assaulted two women in Devon. And then, again, he went quiet for years. Like Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Oh yes, they float, they float. Jack wouldn't reappear again until 1872 in Peckham with another rash of sightings. A patrol of soldiers in Hampshire happened upon Jack one night and opened fire on him, but their bullets had no effect, with Jack just laughing at the soldiers as they shot at him in vain before disappearing in smoke and blue fire. The soldiers in question claim to have shot at Jack over a dozen times to no effect. They believed him to be bulletproof. The after-action reports claim that the soldiers simply missed. The truth may never be known. The last reported sighting of Springhill Jack was in Liverpool in 1904. Witnesses reported a figure bounding down a dimly lit street before jumping onto the rooftops in a single leap and disappearing into the night forevermore. And that is the legend of Springhill Jack. Now, Springhill Jack may actually have been a demon, it's a theory. It's a theory that requires that you forget everything you know about science and history, but it's still a theory. And some people today believe that spring Hill Jack was a demon escaped from hell to wreak havoc among the living. And if you want to believe that, then sure, why not? It's Halloween. But if you're from a part of the world where Halloween isn't the big deal it is in the rest of the Anglosphere, then what might account for the phenomenon of spring Hill Jack? How do you account for the bounding leaps, the striking blue fire, and the fact that he would have been well over 80 years old by the last sighting? Well, we don't know the truth. We'll probably never know the truth of it. But the best scientific consensus is that spring Hill Jack wasn't just one person. He was a collective of no-good punk teens, and that after the initial couple of attacks the rest were just copycats that were done all across the country and later blown out of proportion by unreliable eyewitness recollection and here's the key clue everyone who was attacked by springhill jack claimed that he smelled of sulfur to the sensibilities of people living in 19th century england this was simply proof that springhill jack was the devil himself But remember what I said earlier about this being a period of great scientific development? The more educated elites of this time would have known something that most people in the period did not. And that's that sulfur, the 16th element on the periodic table, burns blue. The children of rich aristocrats being educated in the gentlemanly sciences would have been shown blue-burning sulfur as a fun experiment to get them engaged with learning. To everyone else in this day and age, it would have appeared to have been magical. Springheel Jack was performing something that would later become a staple trick of magicians, blowing burning sulfur out of his hand to create a wall of blue flame. This is the magic trick, huh? Illusion, Michael. Mm. Trick is something a whore does for money. And the eyewitness reports claim that Jack's clothes were particularly finely made. He wore the clothing of a gentleman, not the rags of the poor. So spring Hill Jack was wealthy, and he was educated in the natural sciences. That's some strong evidence to suggest that Springhill Jack was a young aristocrat out hunting people at night for sport. Tories haven't changed much in the last 150 years. This is well within the realms of reason. Oh, and I purposely forgot one bit of key evidence. Here we go. Three months into the rash of the Spring Hill Jack attacks, Lord Cowan, the Lord Mayor of London, received an anonymous letter claiming that the so-called Spring Hill Jack attacks were not a nocturnal terror at all, but in fact an elaborate prank perpetrated by the aristocratic youth of London. I'll quote the letter here. Quote, It appears that some individuals, of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil, and moreover that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purposes of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven young ladies of their senses, two of whom are not likely to recover, but to become burdens to their families. At one house the man rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse-than-brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a spectre clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses. The affair has now been going on for some time, and, strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their fingers' ends, but, through interested motives, are induced to remain silent. End quote. The letter was signed, simply, a resident of Peckham, but it was penned on fine stationery in a firm hand clearly the work of someone of means and highly literate, which meant an aristocrat. And also, you know, the tone of the whole thing. These women got scared, they're not fit to marry anymore, better put them out to pasture. Like I said, it wasn't a fun time. So suspicion fell on the aristocracy in general, but on one aristocrat in particular, the Marquess of Waterford. Now this guy, This guy is a right piece of shit. Well, the source materials that I use have the word, uh, noted eccentric, but you can fill in the blanks. Henry Beresford, the third Marquess of Waterford, was, uh, how do we say on this show? Uh, A complicated character. He was better known at the time as the Mad Marquess, possibly on account of his madness. Henry Beresford was, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, known to authorities. Henry Beresford, the third Marquess of Waterford, was not only a dangerous lunatic in and of himself, but he had that defining quality of every bully from a 1980s coming-of-age comedy. He had a posse of equally drunken lunatics who followed him around doing his bidding. Henry Beresford got to where he was in life by everyone who was in front of him in line to the title of Marquess of Waterford dying in a series of freak accidents and misfortunes that looks like some Final Destination shit. And this had an effect on the young Marquess of Waterford as he began to display what we know today as clear signs of psychopathy. The dude would just walk around London breaking things. He would smack items out of people's hands, he would tip off their hats, he would randomly start fights in the street, and when police were called to break up the fight, Henry Beresford would fight the police. One time, he and a bunch of his dipshit lord mates got blind drunk at the races and they were walking back home, and on their way back home they passed through a toll booth, and the toll keeper asked for the toll, which was his job, and yes, I know I just said toll a lot. So, Henry Beresford, not feeling like paying a toll, even though he was rich, proving that he was a Tory, assaulted the toll-keeper. He beat the man up, and then, and here comes the psychopathy, for some reason, he reached into the toll booth and pulled out a bucket of red paint. He then painted the toll-keeper red, I don't know why. then he threw the toll-keeper back in the booth, and again, for reasons unknown possibly even to Henry Beresford, he nailed wooden planks over the door to board the poor guy up inside the booth. And now, Henry Beresford has a taste for committing assault and painting people red. He wants more. He needs more. So he and his drunken mates go on a rampage through London. They started knocking over flower pots, breaking windows, pulling down street signs, tipping over carriages. It was a true rampage. And at some point, they went looking for red paint, which they found in a hardware store. And Henry Beresford and his posse of dickhead Lord Friends started painting houses and businesses red. And when police were sent to stop them, they ambushed the police, tied them up, and then painted the police red. The police regrouped and then sent more officers to take down this mob. They managed to capture a solitary member of the gang, one Edward Reynard, and throw him into the lockup. Henry Beresford, the 3rd Marquess of Waterford, still drunk, broke into the police station, picked the lock on the cell, rescued Edward Raynard, and the two of them then beat up the police officers in the station, tied them up, and then painted both the police station and the police officers red. This rampage only stopped when the group began to sober up. And now, because... Henry Beresford was the 3rd Marquess of Waterford, and thus one of the most upper-class people in England, he was essentially above the law. So for all of this rampage, he got away with a small fine and a promise not to do it again. And this story, I shit you not, all of this is categorically true, and you can fact-check me on this. Please, go and research it on your own. This story is honest to God, the origin of the phrase to paint the town red. It references when Henry Beresford went on a drunken rampage and painted people red. Henry Beresford, the third Marquess of Waterford, the mad Marquess, had a track record for sadism, vandalism, violence, contempt for women, attempted rape, he ostensibly would do anything on a dare, and he had more than enough money to finance an elaborate costume with technological gadgets. Henry Beresford is firmly the prime suspect for Springheel Jack. The problem with that theory is that Henry Beresford only had one leg. Mr. Spigot, is it not? Uh, yes, Spigot by name, Spigot by nature. One day, during one of his drunken parties on his uh, so called pleasure yacht, he decided to kick a cannon, and the cannon kicked back and blew his leg off which makes the Spring-Heeled part seem a bit unlikely. But what's far more likely is that Henry Beresford was the backer and the instigator for a bunch of his equally dickhead acolytes to take on the mantle of Spring-Heeled Jack and go around London assaulting people. Or, you know, what they usually did in broad daylight and not in disguise, but with added pyrotechnics. But that's just a theory. It's a good theory, it's the one I subscribe to, but it's just a theory. The real Springhill Jack may never be found. He got away with it. And so Springhill Jack would pass on into myth and legend. As I said before, he became a staple for all of the schlocky entertainment mediums of the time, particularly the penny dreadful novels. And there was a particularly popular author of penny dreadfuls at the time, named A. M. Burridge, who wrote a number of short stories about Springhill Jack. And these proved to be very popular. Burridge liked the idea that Springhill Jack was more than just a prankster. Burridge came up with the idea that there was this wealthy aristocrat by day who would have these crazy adventures by night. The twist that Burridge put on his stories was that Springhill Jack wasn't a monster who terrorised the innocent people of London but rather a vigilante figure who terrified the criminals of London. Because remember, this period was rife with crime. I mean, poor people crime. When rich people do it, it's not a crime. This show and the last show certainly proved that. So with the crime wave happening in London, A.M. Burrage's Spring Hill Jack was a figure who sprung from the shadows and the rooftops to stop criminals in their tracks. He was an aristocrat who used his vast wealth to construct an underground lair as his base of operations, maintained by his faithful butler, but also constructing an array of technologically advanced gadgets that he used to fight crime, terrorizing criminals by jumping out of the darkness before disappearing in a plume of smoke. And that's honestly the story of how the world's most recognizable superhero, is based on the police reports of a 19th century techno-rapist. Spring Hill Jack wasn't the urban legend London deserved, but it was the one it needed. Happy Halloween, everyone. (laughs) Did I just say Springfield Jack? i got to stop watching The Simpsons.